you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 13 through 21. Mark 3, verses 13 to 21. Just before we uh, read this, I mean, one of the things that should should happen to us in, in Bible teaching. So we go, we go to a Sunday school class, say so you're going to go to Pastor Terry's class in the next hour in the, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy. And in that class, they take a fair chunk of, uh, of Scripture and go through it at, at one time. Here in the Gospels, we're, we're tending to go through about a paragraph each time. And, and one of the things that, that I hope you carry away from something like this is not just, okay, that's neat the way he drew that um, you know, sermon out of that text, but, but sort of you read the Bible hopefully every day. And you know, like what we'll do this morning, give you some indication on you know, how, to, how you read your own Bible. What's there, what's there to be meditated on if you, if you slow down enough and think a bit about what you're reading? Well, that's, you know, that's one of the opportunities when you uh, have to just think about, how do I read my Bible each day? Um, how, do I, how do I, what do I land on? Are there things there that I should land on. And there are. There, there definitely are. And hopefully as we walk through the Bible together, we demonstrate a little bit of, of how, that, how that works. So with that said, let's, uh, let's stand together and uh, we'll read uh, Mark three thirteen through 21. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee and John, brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Just before we uh, uh, pray together, I mentioned to you that uh, our Kendra Brower is in uh, hospice care now, coming to her home. So remember the Brower family as uh, things get uh, more and more intense and dire in some ways and Continue to pray um, a number of fronts, so that's one. Uh, the other, uh, uh, Sophia Vanderdusen's father passed away a little over a week ago, somewhat uh, suddenly, and uh, they're actually away this weekend. I think that this weekend they'll be returning from that funeral, but uh, you can remember the Vanderdusen family as well in, the, in this loss that they've experienced. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, 
We praise your name and give you thanks because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. And sometimes in the midst of disease and loss, especially in a protracted, painful, painful over a long time, disease like cancer, we can wonder if you really are good. And we can wonder whether your steadfast love really does rest upon us. But you assure us that it is so. In the face of death and disease, we give you thanks, for you are good. And we know that your steadfast love endures forever. We speak great things about your name, O Lord, for you have caused us to know many reasons to praise you. You are the creator, you are the sustainer of all things. You are a God who loves us, as we sang a few minutes ago. You are the one who changes us from the inside out. Makes changes, you make changes in us that are truly everlasting in their implications. Lord, make us among the blessed people who keep your judgments. Make us a people who mirror you in doing righteousness at all times. Remember us, O Lord, and consider us to be among your favored people. Help us, visit us by means of your saving grace, we ask. Show us your goodness. Show us the goodness of being considered among your chosen people. To be those who rejoice in the kind of rejoicing that your people are able to show forth because of who they are, because of their connection with you. And may we be deeply aware of that in spite of the fact that as your historical people, we too, we too find ourselves often sinning, often falling short, often attracted to iniquity, quick to forget about the wonderful things that you have done for us. We sang this morning about the glories of the cross and how quick we are to forget your love that is mirrored there, demonstrated there. To lose the wonder of our salvation that is grounded there. So, Lord, we pray that you would come and enable us to see something this morning of your wonders. The wonder of how it is that we have become disciples, the wonder of how it is and what it is to be a disciple of yours. We ask that you would do this for us, and we ask that you'd come and meet us now. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Back in the mid-70s, when our family moved from Chicago to Fort St. James, British Columbia, we, we moved from a radio market 
in which on the FM side, if you just like touch the dial, you are on another station. Uh, uh, in the Chicago area, FM stations were beginning to explode, plus all the, the big AM uh, radio stations. And, uh, and, and in Fort St. James, uh, during the daytime, th- there were two stations. Uh, the one was the, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Network, their version of our national public radio and then one uh, radio station out of Prince George uh, that, I don't, know, I don't know what you'd call it. I mean, they played music on it from time to time, but they, they, they did a whole bunch of things on it. And um, if, if, you were, if you had grown up in the Chicago radio market, you would definitely refer to it as a Bush League um, radio station that never could have survived. Uh, in a market where there was uh, competition. Therefore, if, if you lived in Fort St. James, the, the only way uh, that you would know like what, what the really popular songs were uh, was uh, by somehow looking it up, which wasn't easy in those days. There was no... There was no Internet, you certainly wouldn't have been able to figure it out off of the, uh, the radio station. The best way probably in our, in our little community was the Henry Brisson, who ran the pool hall, did have a jukebox there, and he tried to keep up. Uh, so he put new records in there so you could tell, you know, what was, uh, what was sort of hot when we moved there at 74, for instance. Uh, Paul McCartney, the stuff up, the Band on the Run album, that was all on that jukebox, so you could tell that's probably somewhere near the top of the chart. But there was this one other way, if, uh, and that is they, uh, they put out these records. You may remember if you're old enough to be in the 70s, like KTEL, Hot, Hot 25, KTEL, they'd advertise it on TV down here. They didn't do that up there. But they would show up like the Hudson Bay Company. And a friend of mine named Louis Costa, he bought one of those. I could still picture it. It was yellow, and, uh, and it had uh, uh, like 20, 20 songs on it. And we listened to that. And the, and the song that stood out to me, which I had never heard, had never heard of this person before, uh, never uh, heard of this song uh, before in, in uh, early 1974 was a guy by the name of Billy Joel. I became acquainted with him later. Um, but Billy Joel, and the, and the song was called Piano Man, series of verses with a chorus. Uh, the last verse, the last verse in that, in that song uh, went like this. The piano sounds like a carnival and the microphone smells like a beer. And they sit at the bar and put bread in my jar and say, man, what are you doing here? Man, what are you doing here? Now our own Eric can make the piano sound like a carnival. Uh, uh, we'll draw no more analogies to Eric uh, from the, than that one. Um, um, but uh, the idea was was this: the feedback in his brief little time as a piano player worked this way. Uh, people would say to him. What is somebody as talented as you doing in a dive like this? See, man, what are you doing here? What's a talented person like you doing in a dive like this? Um, You ought to be doing better. Now, in our text for this morning, it's that that question I want to seize on. Only in the Gospels, it works in in exactly the opposite direction. Same question. Same question. 
considered of something like the apostles, considered more broadly of the disciples of Jesus in the world in any given time. We should pose ourselves the question, what are we doing here? How is it that we ended up with a relationship with Jesus Christ? How is it that we would turn out to be disciples? Of the 12 names that get listed in our, our text, we know a little bit about roughly half of them. And nothing that we know is very impressive, right? Four of them uh, are fishermen by trade. And the fifth one worked for the first century version of the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, But here they are. Here they are among the 12 disciples. He calls them apostles. So this is the narrow insider group. We're disciples, we're not apostles. Uh, But the analogy as to how you become one and how you become the other, I think we'll see, according to the New Testament, is very, very tight. And so we look at Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and Bartholomew, and on down the list. And the question should, what are, how is it that they became insider disciples of Jesus? What are they doing there? How did they get there? And out of the billions of people on the planet, how is it that you, if you have become one, how is it that you have become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question that Mark is answering in in our text for this morning. And And he answers it in a really, really striking way, in a hugely encouraging way, in especially in the broader categories of New Testament, really biblical uh, thought categories. I'd state our thesis for this morning this way. Disciples are chosen, known by name, and servants of the gospel of God. Disciples are chosen, known by name, and servants of the gospel of God. So we'll start with this. Uh, Disciples are who they are by the call of God. Or more narrowly in this text, disciples are who they are by the call of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 13, and he went on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. So he's, he's, answering, he's answering Billy Joel's question. Man, what are they doing here? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what they're doing here. Let me tell you how they got here. The twelve. He's answering the question, how did the twelve become the twelve? And by implication, broadly, how do Christian disciples become Christian disciples? As Dan reminded us again this morning, we are becoming disciples. Uh, We are disciples and we're becoming more of who we are through the sanctification of the Spirit by means of of the word and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired now that he the verb he called 
is, is actually a middle. It's in what they, a grammarian would call the middle, putting great emphasis on the fact that he's the one, he himself does, does the calling. And so you could, you, you might translate it something like this. And he went up on the mountain and he himself called whom he desired. He himself called whom he desired. In other words, becoming disciples is not like making the team, um, in a sense. There's no emphasis on the same thing, right? So everybody goes out for the team, and then the team practices together. And yes, eventually the coach is going to prove and and choose who makes the cut, but the emphasis is very much on, if he's considered to be a fair coach, that he's going to make the cut based on the performance of those who came out for the team. And so he's evaluating their performance. And then he's going to decide on the 12 most talented players that he thinks will gel together. And that's how he arrives at the team. That's not the emphasis here. There's not a word or even a hint in the direction of the talent level of the people involved. All of the emphasis is on the person making the choice, namely Jesus. There's no process of him going through the countryside looking for the best talent. In fact, all the stories that are told about how he runs across the disciples seem to just be almost random. Wouldn't call them random, but they're certainly not. They're certainly not anything like a spiritual tryout. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. They become disciples because he himself called. And whom did he call? Whom he desired. Now, if you've been in Pastor Terry's Sunday school class the last couple of weeks, they were in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which which is just the parallel question. How is it that the people of Israel become the people of God? How do they become the elect people of God? And in in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he, he goes out of his way to say, well, let me tell you how it didn't happen. It wasn't because there was anything special about them. But rather, it comes down to something like this. He loved them because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. God set his special love on Israel because he, spe- he set his special love on Israel. There it is. Well, you have exactly the same emphasis here. Not by accident. Same theology, same concept of God. Jesus and the twelve work just like God and the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament. It's not, a, it's not a, uh, just a happenstance that there's twelve tribes in Israel and there's twelve disciples that Jesus chooses. And he himself called those whom he desired. Back to Fort St. James. Moved up there shortly after I did. A, uh, a family, the oldest boy in the family was a year younger than me. Um, but he was, uh, he was ahead in all of his classes. So we took some science classes together because uh, he, he just was that uh, far ahead. He's probably, no doubt, in my growing up career, he was the smartest kid um, I ever knew. His dad uh, was a medical doctor who had uh, left his practice in California, and he came up and as sort of a, a, a mission, he took a government job, and his job was to go out and take care of the health needs of all the remote tribes uh, up there, the remote villages of what now they call uh, First Nations uh, peoples. 
And uh, he was a pilot as well, so he had his own plane. He'd fly into these various uh, reserves uh, that were built along various lakes up there and do medical clinics and take care of everybody, that, that family. They had five kids um, uh, by, by natural birth, and they had, they had adopted two. Uh, they had adopted two uh, Native girls, um, uh, Laura and Mary Ann, and, uh, and, and he did a Bible study for a, a f- few high school kids on Monday nights. Um, I, I think early on in my, uh, or late in my junior year, and it was pretty small, a couple of his sons, myself, and a friend of mine named uh, Louie, who, uh, who I invited and Louis was sort of a Roman Catholic, though, I mean, he didn't believe much of anything, but he was, uh, that was his heritage, and that's what he would have said about himself. And he was interested enough to come to a Bible study, and uh, I remember one illustration that he, that he used. His, his, all of his kids were, like, super, super uh, bright. It, would, it was very intimidating sort of... Uh, of, of, of family, you know, the, the kind of family you walk on the edge of it, you don't feel like as a friend that you should be there. Like, yeah, I probably don't fit here. You would hope that your son would find better friends than me, but apparently he can't. Uh, so, you know, so here I am, uh, and, here, and here we are uh, around the edges of this really, really impressive uh, family. But they were, uh, apparently they were sinners because he, he was, he was, sharing at this Bible study once on a Monday night that he would overhear um, when his natural-born children would be in a bit of a fight with his adopted children. He would hear them say something like this, Hey, remember, we're the real kids in this family, and you are only adopted. So just remember that. Well, that'd be a pretty intimidating thing to hear in that family because they were an intimidating group of kids. Like, whoa. So he called a meeting, called a family meeting. And at his family meeting, he said, well, he said, I heard, you know, you guys, I've heard you guys fighting. I heard you say some pretty mean things. Well, let me just give you something to think about in relation to those things because I think you're seeing it all backwards backwards so he says so now you you know you you five that uh you know you're really part of this family you're really part of this family well let me just remind you when it comes to you we just took whatever the lord sent us um now we're committed we love you we love you we were glad we're glad you're here but we just, you know, just our Christian commitment, it was our job to love whatever the Lord sent us. And he sent us you, and we're glad, we love you. Um, but the other two, but the other two, that wasn't the case. We went out uh, and found you. And we... We adopted you because we really wanted you in our family. For sure. We really wanted you in our family. And, of course, he, he was making the, he, he was making the uh, it wasn't just a random story. We were talking about the idea of being adopted into Christ that night. It's like, I've never forgotten that illustration. It's like, that's... That's the Lord's connection with you. And that's really the emphasis here in Mark 3. Jesus himself called you. Why? Because he desired you. He called whom he desired. That. That's encouraging. Like, whoa. Whoa. Not necessarily because you were so impressive, but he called you. 
That's how Peter got in. That's how James got in. That's how John got in. That's how any of the apostles got in. And that's how you became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now, there, it's right in the text, right? This is the balance of the Bible. There's, we make decisions. We talk about making decisions for Jesus, and we, we do. You know, notice how it, it, the verse ends, and they came to him. He called them. They came to him. That's what the, be what's called an effectual call, but that doesn't affect the fact. They really make a choice, and they come to be followers of Jesus, and, and we made decisions, and we've become followers of, uh, of Jesus as well. Uh, but don't miss this. This is, this is the emphasis all over the New Testament as to talk about how it is somebody comes a disciple. Uh, parallel passage over in uh, John 15, verse 16. Jesus says this, uh, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Well, you just said we did choose him. Well, yes, but only after he chose us. And the point in John 15, 16 is, if you're looking for the ultimate explanation of how you became a disciple, don't look at your choice, look at mine. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. You find the same thing now attached to God the Father in Paul's writings, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then here, back to adoption language. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So that all the disciples are not merely disciples, they're adopted children as disciples. Any real disciple is an adopted child, and every real adopted child is a disciple. And that's who we are, and that's how we got there. So man, what are you doing here? He himself, he himself chose Peter. Why? Because he desired him. Why? Not relevant. He himself chose Peter, James, John, because he desired them. Secondly, disciples are known by name and called to be with Jesus. Verse 14, And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, Here's, so that they might be with him. Now that's wonderfully kind, encouraging language, isn't it? That they might be with him. That they might have a certain kind of personal connection, a close personal connection with him. Might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, and son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, and on he goes and lists off uh, the rest of the twelve. A couple of things just to notice in, in, in passing. Number one, um, the progressive movement is definitely disappointed in Jesus here. He chooses 12 Jewish men. 12 Jewish men. That that is, by our modern standards, an absolute failure of diversity. And so we go back and we say, well, okay. We want to get Jesus off the hook, so he's probably he's a child of his time. You know, they weren't they weren't as enlightened then as we are now. Now be careful when you say that, because that, that assumes this. That assumes this. Like the collective wisdom of the faculties of American universities 
certainly is greater and broader and deeper than the wisdom of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be quick to go there. The collective wisdom of the editorial board of the New York Times is deeper, more reliable than the wisdom of Jesus. Well, I don't think so. In Jesus' day, the world was as diverse a place as it is now. It was. We were all there. And he still does this. I just simply submit to you, there might be some wisdom in it. And it might call into question the wisdom of how we think along these lines. It does call into question the wisdom of how we think along these lines. Lines, twelve Jewish men. Now, in the broader scope of the disciples, of course, there's men, there's men and women, uh, right from the start. One of my favorite stories early on in John's Gospel, in fact, is the wedding of Canaan, when when Jesus' mother Mary uh, annoys him a little bit by trying to put him in charge of solving a problem that they're having there at the wedding. He he rebukes her for trying to put him in charge, and then, interestingly enough, he turns around and solves the problem, just like she wanted him to. Uh, But along the way, she says this amazing sort of universal disciple thing in verse 5. She says to those dealing with Jesus, do whatever he says to you. Do whatever he says. That's really good advice. That's really profound advice. Uh, by Jesus' mother. Do whatever he says. So we, you put these two things together. He chose us that we might be with him. Uh, he chose us um, out of his wisdom. And he knows us by name. And then, this is the kind of thing where if you pause and think about it, they go, oh, I don't know if you're... You notice two of these, three of these guys have nicknames. Simon, he, he gave him the nickname Peter. And James and John... He gave them nicknames. He gave them the nicknames. Sons of Thunder. Boanerges. Jesus gives out nicknames. Now the implications of this are, are actually pretty big. Right? I was tempted to say this when we were introduced in our text for this morning, but since I knew I had it buried in, uh, in the passage, I thought well, I'll just let it come up in the in the, in the message, right? So the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews opens this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, by, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also created the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds all things in the universe by the word of his power. So God has been revealing himself all along the way, through Moses, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, David. God's revealing himself. Many portions and in many ways. We're told he spoke to Moses face to face. However, in these last days, in these last days, we have the ultimate, the clearest so far, the Here's the progressivism in the Bible. Progressive revelation. A clearer understanding of God occurring in the New Testament than in the Old because of the advent of Jesus Christ. Um, 
the song that we were singing this morning in Inside Out. Inside Out. Uh, there's a little phrase in that song that if you, if you think about what you're singing, um, it'll, it'll thrill you down to your socks. We all believe this, but we don't think about what we believe as much as we should, right? It keeps repeating, everlasting, 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 everlasting. And the idea is you've come to bear an everlasting connection with God. That's why you're singing. This is what's happened to you. You have come to have an everlasting connection with God that's working inside of you from the inside out forever. That's what's happened. That's what's happened. Um, see, that same, that same emphasis is here in... in Hebrews 1.3 says this about Jesus. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So how big a deal is Jesus? Well, he's infinitely big. He's eternal. He, is, he created the world back in verse 2. He's the heir of all things. It's all his. He made it. He's the everlasting God. And then we're told, in fact, he's exactly like God in every detail of his character. And Jesus is so personally connected to his disciples that he gives them nicknames. Does God think about people like that? According to Hebrews, he does. So, well, because the Father is reflected perfectly in the Son. The Son is the exact representation of the nature of God. And he has such a relationship with his people that he connects with them, that we would consider sort of the intimate, personal connection of Giving them a nickname. That's incredibly encouraging to think about. Like, what? Jesus gave people nicknames, and he did it as the exact representation of God's nature. And then he says to his disciples, again, to go over back over to... Uh, John 15, where we've already jumped once, but right in front of verse 16, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says to the disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard of my father, I have made known to you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What a wonder it is to be a disciple. The friends of God. Oh, I think you might be going too far. Not according to the New Testament. Not according to the New Testament. That's how Jesus talks. And the author of Hebrews tells us, and how Jesus talks is exactly what the triune God is like. It's what the Father is like. Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of him. He's the exact representation of the very nature of God. And he has, a, he, he has chosen us, called us, because he desired us. And he's called us so that we might be with him we might have that kind of connection with him. It's, it's astonishing. It's astounding. Third and finally, disciples are to be devoted to the work of Jesus. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they, would not, they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard 
they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, this is, a, this is considered to be a, a very difficult uh, passage, that last little section, verse 21, when his family heard, um, because here, here's, it doesn't actually say that in, in, uh, in the original text, but it is the traditional, and it's the best guess. But here's, here's what the original, here's, here's all the original text says, and you can see why they would fill it in, because it's, it's not, it doesn't seem very helpful. And those having heard, those who are with him, uh, they departed to grasp him, for they were saying that he's beside himself. He's out of his mind. Well, those who were with him, they can't, they can't come to grasp him if they're the disciples, because they're already there. So it can't be them. So, um, so especially in Protestant exegesis, they would say, and have said, it's obviously his broader family, and I think it is. However, in Roman Catholic exegesis, you can't have it be his family. Because Mary belongs to the family, and you can't have Mary saying that Jesus is nuts because she's sinless, and it would be a sin to say he's nuts. So it can't be her, can't be them. So that's the argument. That's the argument back and forth. But the traditional interpretation for the last 500 years, I think, is right. And that is, this is his family. Mary and the brothers, the brothers are not believers. Mary is a believer, but she still watches what's going on and thinking, oh, I don't know, it doesn't, look, it doesn't look like it's making a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, they're not even taking time to eat. The, the, the place is, is flooded with people. What is going on here? And in the, in the margin, in the margin of the... Uh, the Greek New Testament, there's a, there's a reference, and it might be in some of our translations as well, to the text that was read this morning from Psalm 69. So there's Jesus. He's so into the gospel of God that they're not even taking time to eat. And here's what it said. The two connections, the two parallels between Psalm 69, 9-12, in our text as it closes, and then we'll close. Of David, and by analogy of greater David, the Messiah, for the zeal of your house has consumed me. So I'm really into the things of God. Uh, but now notice the reaction of the, of the culture in David's day, culture in Jesus' day, the culture in our day. It's not, wow, that's cool. He's really into the kingdom of God. That's just how a person ought to be. No, no, that's not how it goes in Psalm 69. And that's not how it goes in Mark 3 either. The zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, and became, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and drunkards make songs about me. I'm a joke. They think I'm nuts. They think I'm nuts. That's Psalm 69. That's Mark 3. The family thinks Jesus has lost it. He's gone too far. He's acting crazy. And so they come, they come to help him. Now that's good to know, right? Because some of you, some of you, there's people in your life, because you're a follower of Jesus, they think you're crazy. And sometimes you wonder. Maybe, maybe I am. But they think you're crazy. You look crazy. 
How could you think that? That's crazy. How could you let Jesus control that aspect of your life and thinking? That's crazy. It's good to know. That's always been said. That's always been said about the people of God. Said in David's day. Said in Jesus' day. Not too surprising. Not too surprising. It will be said in our day. Don't let it bother you. Don't let it bother you. You just keep devoting yourself like Jesus to the things of the kingdom of God. You may look to them like you're out of your mind. But you're actually among those whom unaccountably he himself, Jesus himself, called you. Because he desired you. That he could be with you. And he knows you by name. And he sends you out into the world to represent him. In any number of callings that he may have given you to represent him in. But he sends you out in the world to represent him. As his called disciple. And it is the greatest privilege in all the world. Nothing greater ever happens to anybody than that they be given, again, as we sang, an everlasting connection to God himself. That God, by his Holy Spirit, would be changing us from the inside out. Everlasting. Everlasting. What a gift. What a wonder it is to be a disciple. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, enable us to see What a glorious privilege to know you, to be known by you, to have you know us by name, to have you connect with us with an intimacy where nicknames make sense to you, to you, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of your nature. We, we thank you for your word and ask that you would apply it to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.